Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on June 19th, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. On June 6th, Scientific American, Nature Research, and California Congressman Jerry McNerney hosted our third Science on the Hill event. This edition focused on solving the problem of plastic waste. And what you'll hear now is an edited version of the hour-long panel discussion with experts and Representative McNerney, who holds a doctorate in mathematics. The event was moderated by our editor-in-chief, Mariette Cristina, and it looked at plastics and microplastics and offered some important info about the legendary Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Here's Mariette Cristina. I'm delighted to, uh, to welcome you to our third Science on the Hill, which we're so happy to work with Representative Jerry McNearney on to help bring uh, conversations around scientific topics to the halls of the Rayburn Building. And I'm deeply indebted to Representative McNearney, who wrote to me, well, it's a year and a half ago now, something like that, saying um, you know, that you'd been a reader of Scientific American, and could we possibly work together mm-hmm. on, on a fun way to bring these conversations to you? And, you know, here we are with our third one. The first one was on new energy technologies for a sustainable future. We also did, uh, the last one was on AI, robotics, and your health. We capture all of the material that you're about to hear here in podcasts and also some articles from the experts, and they'll be housed on Scientific American and available for you later as well. It seems particularly timely to come to the topic today, uh, you know, with the Capitol Ocean, um, Capitol Hill Ocean Week and uh, all of the news, I mean, all of the news about plastics and microplastics and waste, and we will come on to that very, very shortly. I mean, with a, you know, garbage island floating in the ocean and concerns about what these tiny plastics are doing in our bodies and in our environment. Today, you're going to learn a little bit about those key issues and what we should start to think about for ways to address them. And now I'm super pleased to invite our host and partner, Representative Jerry McNearney, to share some opening remarks from his perspective. Thank you, and I appreciate um, partnering with Scientific American. Again, I have read that magazine, uh, not its entire uh, publishing history, but uh, (laughs) part of it. (laughs) Uh, there's There's some interesting facts uh, out there. Today we produce globally over 300 million tons of plastic every year worldwide. So that's a lot of plastic. Half of that plastic is used for a single purpose. So the world produces about 150 million tons of plastic that is used only one time and then discarded. So about 8 million tons of that plastic is dumped into the oceans every single year. So uh, municipalities, uh, some of the, the states and, and local governments are taking steps to reduce plastic, like California uh, eliminated plastic straws recently, and that was a, a matter of some uh, praise and criticism, depending on which side you're on. But uh, those kinds of things are happening. So uh, we're going to move forward, but we need to do more, and the, and the awareness of this issue is going to help uh, create more action. So I'm very happy, happy to have... Uh, people here to talk about this today, some experts, and you'll be impressed with what they say, I'm sure. Thank you so much. First, I'm going to talk to uh, Dr. Carol lavender Law. She's a research professor at the Sea Education Association in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, studying sources, distribution, behavior, and fate of plastic debris in the ocean. Carol, can you tell us first, because we're talking about plastics and microplastics, and it occurs to me that not everybody maybe has the same familiarity what that is. Can you tell us a little bit about that and then about what you're seeing? Sure. 
Um, first, I would just like to say thank you very much for the invitation to participate in this event and for having the event to begin with. I think it's a really important conversation that we should all be having, so thank you very much. Um, before I dive right into microplastics, I'd like to start a little bit higher up about with the ocean and why we care about the ocean, and um, hopefully all of you care about the ocean, and that's why you've come here today. Uh, as you probably know, the oceans cover more than 70% of the Earth's surface, and their health really is critically important to us as we live on this planet. So in addition to providing a food supply, you may also know that the oceans provide more than 50% of the oxygen that we breathe, and the heat transport in the oceans is a key regulator of our climate. And of course, the oceans are very important to our economy here in the United States, not only because of recreation and tourism and fishing and aquaculture, but also because more than three quarters of all the U.S. trade that occurs relies upon marine transportation. So we really are using the oceans in a variety of ways. But when I meet students who are studying marine science, or if I meet students of lots of different majors who come and study with us in our sea semester program, the most common answer by far to the question, why are you studying the ocean, is, I love the ocean. I've always loved the ocean ever since I was a kid. And as important as the goods and services that the blue economy provides are, and they're very important, I think that we're here because people inherently feel a very strong and emotional connection to the ocean. And that could be because of childhood spent on a beach or a scuba diving vacation or because perhaps they live in a fishing community. Um, or maybe they've just seen images of really compelling white sand beaches or diverse coral reef ecosystems or remote shores of Antarctica. But because I think of these strong emotional connections, when they then learn that these corals are ingesting tiny plastic particles, or there's trash accumulating on beaches thousands of miles away from people, or when they see images of seabird bellies filled with plastic, or learn that a whale died after having eaten 90 pounds of plastic bags, there is a very real strong reaction of shock and disgust. And so given this sort of love of the ocean and care for the ocean and knowledge of its importance, I think Generally speaking, we just don't want to see it littered with trash. I got involved in ocean plastics because our students at Sea Semester since 1971, undergraduate students have been sailing the open ocean and collecting microplastics. So microplastics, when we talk about microplastics, they're not very well defined. It basically, the term sort of means small bits of plastic. Uh, I usually say smaller than your pinky fingernail. There is one definition that says a particle that's smaller than five millimeters, but there's some scientific debate about how we should classify these. But generally speaking, microplastics are particles of plastic that most of which started as a larger item that we're all familiar with, these single-use items that we use every day. And when they're exposed to sunlight, that material weakens. And then when they get sort of jostled about, the, the items can, can crack and break into smaller and smaller pieces. And if you've picked up sort of a lost plastic cup or, or beach toy and, and seen it kind of fall apart in your hands, that's what you're seeing is the generation of microplastics. So. Um, at SEA, students have been towing plankton nets at the sea surface for more than 30 years, twice a day, every day, and then hand counting the contents of that net. So uh, in terms of my research interests, I really am interested in how the plastic is getting into the ocean, where it is, what it looks like, what form it takes, how it gets transformed, broken down over time. Um, to our knowledge, plastics, traditional plastics do not biodegrade in the ocean at all. Um, we don't know how small they get. There's some evidence that they may get down to nanoparticle size. And we do know that microplastic or plastic debris in general has impacts on ocean life. So we know that more than 800 species of marine wildlife have encountered plastic debris. And there's very clear evidence of physical harm from large debris due to things like entanglement or also just eating large, bits of, large pieces of plastic. But when we're talking about the microplastics, it's important to know that the science is still young. 
we know that microplastics are eaten by a wide variety of marine animals, but we don't fully understand the impacts of the plastics or the chemicals associated with those once the microplastics have been ingested. So there are specific laboratory studies looking at particular animals with particular polymers with particular chemicals associated with them that can find evidence of harm to the animal. But there are other studies that also find no impact. So this is a very young and active area of research at this point. Um, I will say that given the topic of conversation being plastic waste, um, I will say that given the ubiquity of microplastics, not only in the ocean, because this is not just an ocean problem, um, they're also in aquatic ecosystems like lakes and rivers, agricultural soils, atmospheric dust, and even drinking water. This ubiquity, I think, makes them a reason for concern and a reason to talk about how we can prevent plastics from entering the environment. I will say there's a tremendous amount of information on this topic on the web, and it's not all accurate. I would like you to remove the idea of a floating island from your brain. Um, the garbage patch is those little bits of microplastic floating around in a tremendously huge area. Uh, you will see large items. I can show you photos of the boot or the bucket or the canoe or the kayak or the toothbrush or whatever. That stuff is out there, but it is not a large floating landfill. Um, and we've been fighting that, that misperception for decades. So um, please spread the word. We're talking, I mean, plastic soup has been used. I don't love that analogy either. But really, we're talking about these tiny bits of plastic rather than something you could potentially go out and sort of scoop up and remove. So thanks. Thank you so much, Kara. Now, Dr. Morton A. Barlas, who's distinguished university professor and head of the Department of Civil Construction and Environmental Engineering at North Carolina State University. Since 1983, Dr. Barlas has been involved in research on many aspects of solid waste, biological uh, refuse decomposition, methane production, biodegradation of hazardous wastes in landfills, and also in policies for long-term management of landfills after closure. He's conducted life cycle analysis to evaluate environmental emissions associated with alternative solid waste management strategies as well. Dr. Barlas. Thank you, and good afternoon. Um, as Mary had explained, I'm a professor at North Carolina State University, and I've been working on various aspects of solid waste management since the late 1980s, before many of you were born, I suppose. Um, specifically, uh, looking at biological and chemical processes in landfills, and I've studied biodegradability extensively. Um, and this, I think, we'll come back to as we talk about different aspects of, of plastics. But one other aspect of, of biodegradability in landfills, of course, is the opportunity to recover methane as a source of energy. As Merritt mentioned, in addition to research on landfills, I've been active in the application of life cycle analysis to solid waste management systems. In life cycle analysis, or LCA, we analyze alternatives for solid waste management as an integrated system, starting with waste generation, looking at waste collection and transport, separation for recycling, treatment alternatives that include combustion with energy recovery, composting and anaerobic digestion, as well as disposal on landfills. Using LCA, we consider the cost of various alternatives, as well as greenhouse gas emissions, energy consumptions, and another of other emissions, including nutrients in water, and air contaminants such as particulate matter, SOx, nitrous oxide, and carbon monoxide. Throughout my career, I've had the opportunity to work extensively with the waste management industry, as well as the consumer products industry, and think this experience will provide an important perspective uh, as we discuss problems and solutions. 
Within this introduction, I offer a few overarching observations regarding plastic waste. First, I think it's important to separate the issue of plastic waste from the accumulation of plastics in the ocean. And by this, I mean that waste is a material that no longer has value to the person who generated the material. If waste is managed properly at the end of its useful life, then I don't expect significant accumulation in the environment. But I do want to differentiate between disposal and litter. Disposal is something that we can design through proper engineering and operation, whereas litter is a problem of human behavior and one that requires changes to human behavior. I think it's also important that we recognize that there are many types of plastic. And in the US, we only have the infrastructure and collection systems to collect a few types for recycling. Thus, even the term plastics is quite broad as we talk about recycling alternatives. And as we discuss problems and solutions, I think it will become apparent that this is not a one-size-fits-all problem. And finally, I think it's critical that we think systematically and comprehensively. Plastics were developed because they offer a functionality that consumers want. Consumers will continue to demand products that provide that functionality. As such, if we ban a material or we enact a policy to discourage its use, for example, a tax to make a product more expensive, we must at the same time consider alternatives. To be sure, single-use plastic bags have disadvantages, and I personally observed how they've littered the landscape. But to balance that, on May 23rd, listening to public radio on my way home, I listened to a story and it pointed out that consumers, in some cases, were replacing single-use bags with heavier plastic garbage bags. This means more material consumption, more fossil energy use, not necessarily a positive impact. So whatever we propose, I think it's important that we consider all consequences. People don't stop drinking coffee in disposable cups when we ban styrofoam. They use another material. And we've got to look at this and ask if it's a net improvement or not as we talk about solutions. Thank you, Mort. That was great. Now I'd love to turn to, to April Crow um, for her perspective. April Crow is a senior advisor to Circulate Capital, an investment management firm dedicated to financing innovation companies and infrastructure that prevent the flow of plastic waste into the world's ocean while advancing the circular economy. She previously served as Senior Director, Environment and Sustainability for the Coca-Cola Company. She's developed and managed a number of external programs and collaboration efforts in partnership with government, industry, and non-government organizations, including the Trash Free Seas Alliance. She currently serves on NOAA's National Marine Sanctuary's Business Advisory Council and is an advisor for the New Materials Institute. April, I'd love to hear your perspective. Thank you. It is um, really an honor to be here today and to also bring an industry voice to this discussion, which um, is key to finding solutions. And I also just want to acknowledge how much science plays in um, really directing efforts toward finding solutions. As you all heard, I spent most of my career working in industry, more than 20 years at Coca-Cola. And when I started working on this topic about 15 years ago, around waste and recycling. But we started to get, those of us who were aware of this issue, started to really 
push for how do we get science? How do we find the data that can really focus us on the solutions to really start to have impact on this issue. Fast forward a few years, the National Center for Ecological Analysis and Synthesis. Um, that's actually where I met Kara. Uh, she was the lead of this work and what it did, um, this was around 2012, uh, brought together some of the leading uh, si existing science and some of the leading academics and professionals working in this space to really look at what information did we know. This was a completely emerging discipline. One of the first papers that came out of this working group was um, authored by Jenna Jambeck um, out of the University of Georgia, who started to talk about the leaking countries. And many of you may have heard about this, um, just where most of this plastic is now entering the oceans in South and Southeast Asia. From that, there was an additional paper that followed that by one of the leading ocean organizations, Ocean Conservancy, that started to really start to quantify what are some of the actions that we could take to stop this flow of plastic into the oceans. And with that, there was a recommendation around looking at how we could start to set up infrastructure in these particular countries. These are countries where the economic um, and population growth have really outpaced that of waste management systems. Their research talked about the 8 million metric tons of plastic that flow into the ocean each year. And by implementing some opportunities to really stop the flow, being able to reduce that um, in, in a um, quicker way by really starting to focus in particular in these countries. The million dollar question, or in case, this case, actually, it's the multi-billion dollar question, is where do those types of resources come from to start to really get at this problem? There are significant infrastructure needs in general in many of these countries and very little funding that's flowing into the development of waste and recycling solutions. That work and that study then brought a number of companies and a number of corporations together to start to look at what role they could play in this. And that's actually where Circulate Capital, where I'm now working, is focused. Um, we are an, have an investment strategy focused on identifying investments that can be scaled and replicated in, in a way that they can catalyze additional investments in these countries. Our goal is to prove that this is an investable space and then bring in the necessary catalytic capital, the institutional capital necessary to solve this problem. Our funders are some of the major corporations um, here based here in the US and in Europe, Pep PepsiCo, Dow, P&G, Unilever, Coca-Cola, and Danone have all made commitments. We raised $100 million over the past six months, and now we're looking at how we can deploy that money in South and Southeast Asia to show the types of solutions that we can bring to bear on this issue in a way to start prioritizing efforts. I have to say that um, it, it, while we are focused on South and Southeast Asia, um, we have to focus on this in the U.S. in local communities. We have to focus um, all around the world to really get at this problem. But our hope is by starting with where we know most of the flow is coming from, we can then catalyze the efforts there that then lead to others to join us in this journey. Great. Thank you so much. So one, one question I want to follow up to some, on something that certainly Mort raised and, and others raised as well. Um, we, we talked a bit about recycling and waste. Um, one thing we didn't talk about yet is biodegradable plastics. Uh, many people seem to think they're quite helpful. Are they as helpful as people think? 
Biodegradability is an area where I've, I've actually looked at a lot. And much to the surprise of, of many, um, when we look at biodegradability as it pertains to landfills, biodegradability is not a desirable attribute for a material. And the reason for this is that when we design for biodegradability, we're typically designing for rapid biodegradability. And yet landfills do not begin to collect the gas that's produced typically for two years. California requires one years, but the rest of the country is between two and five years. So much of the gas, the methane from biodegradability is released to the environment before gas collection systems are installed. Um, so for that reason, biodegradability from a disposal perspective, if the material is going to a landfill, is not desirable. Of course, there are other perspectives. If the material is being segregated for anaerobic digestion, by all means. But anaerobic digestion is a fairly small technology in terms of its uh, uh, use or market penetration in the U.S. at this time. So too for composting, with the exception of, of yard waste. Now, I just answered the question from a, bio, from a landfill perspective. If I were to switch hats and say, well, is it desirable from a litter perspective? Sure. If it actually biodegrades and is converted to gas, then the litter would disappear, and that's desirable. But let's make sure it's really biodegrading and not just degrading into small pieces that nobody can see. That's degradability. It's not biodegradability. And finally, I would stress that if we're asking, is a material better to be biodegradable or not biodegradable, we need to think about how much energy and how much greenhouse gas result from producing that material plus the end of life, not just focusing on the end of life. We produce materials for a function. We don't produce materials simply for their end of life use or end of life management. So we need to look at production plus end of use. And it gets complicated like everything else. But let me stop there and ask Kara to join. Uh, I, think, I think Mort did a great job uh, summarizing a lot of what I wanted to convey. I would just add that um, biodegra biodegradability is a, is a property of a material. And I say this as an oceanographer who has spoken with material scientists. So I'm by no means an expert on this. But my understanding is that if you're creating a material, you might build in properties like strength or impermeability. And biodegradability is one of these properties. And when you design that, you're designing it for very specific environmental conditions under which it will be degraded by microorganisms. So um, the, the managed systems that Mort mentioned, the, the managed composting and the anaerobic digestion have very small ranges of temperature and oxygen content and moisture under which communities of microorganisms will break down that material in a short time frame suitable for disposal. I do not think that it is possible to design a material that will do that in the open environment and certainly not in the ocean. And again, from sort of streaming my material science colleagues, uh, my understanding is that a lot of the standards around the, you know, calling classifying a material as biodegradable are done under temperatures of 30 degrees Celsius. And for reference, the average temperature of the surface ocean spans four degrees Celsius to 25 degrees Celsius. 
um, or sorry, zero degrees Celsius to 25 degrees Celsius with an average temperature of four degrees Celsius. So even if you had a magical material that satisfied all the other environmental criteria, it's likely that that kind of breakdown would occur on such slow timescales that waste would build up and probably cause in, um, environmental harm. So I do think it can be a little bit of a red herring talking about this. Not to say that there aren't particular applications in which biodegradable materials might be suitable. One example being perhaps packaging for food in which, A, the package itself is pretty hard to collect for recycling. Often there's not even a system in place to recycle it. And if you were disposing a biodegradable material with the food waste into a managed biodegradation facility, that might be a suitable um, a desirable outcome, but we shouldn't think of the ocean as sort of, or the environment as a magical disposal of our waste. Let, let me ask more uh, question. You say uh, the biodegradable plastics produce gas. Is that methane, natural gas? And if so, that's a problem because methane is a greenhouse gas, a strong greenhouse gas. Landfills are anaerobic systems, and the end products of biodegradation in a landfill will be methane and carbon dioxide. So if it's disposed in a landfill and designed for biodegradability, it will produce methane plus CO2, and the methane is the problem because often it's produced before the gas is collected in the landfill. So then it vents to the environment. So I think a lot of people probably just found some of the remarks you just made quite surprising. I would like to invite you to share some additional insights on places where People, public perception, perhaps our perception, is is actually not right. You know where where some of the complexities are. I mean, is it a bad thing necessarily? I I took Mort's point again about about bans and considering alternatives. I've had that question asked most recently around plastic straws because banning straws at the end of the day is not going to really have much of any impact on this issue. What it has done is raise awareness. So. When I look at it from different environmental issues that I've worked on over the years, the the speed at which, well, some of us who've been working on a long time would not agree that, you know, it, it took a long time. But within the past 18 months, the awareness around this topic and I think the will to do something about it has just exponentially grown. And I attribute it to, I mean, there are a lot of different areas that it's coming from, but conversations that people I would not expect to have had are now aware of it because of plastic straws. So I think if we can just figure out a way to harness that type of energy um, and really start to bring forward more of the science and data and the collaborations, the public-private partnerships, those that are needed to really drive this forward, it will be much more powerful. I 100% agree. Um, just to take that a step further, um, I do think there are certain single-use plastic items that we can live without. And not all of us. Some people rely upon straws, and I certainly don't want to take away anybody's straw. But some of these things, like the, the single-use plastic bags, the things that have been sort of picked on, I think, are the nuisance plastics, the ones that we can pretty easily find a replacement for, um, keeping in mind that we need to think carefully about what the replacement should be. So in addition to the awareness raising, I think if we do want to reduce the amount of waste coming from these the 50%, as you mentioned, uh, of single-use items, we should be prepared to sort of make some adjustments and make some concessions. Although I fully agree that, that banning item by item is, is really not going to solve this problem as a whole. So um, I, I would love to. Do you want to add more, please? Go ahead. Just, just quickly, I'll yeah. throw out um, with respect to single-use plastic bags. I had the opportunity to spend three months in uh, Denmark 
20 years ago and you had to pay for the plastic bag. They weren't banned, but you very quickly remember to bring your bags with you. And for that time when you're traveling and just forgot, you could pay. Um, so there are incentives that are someplace between banning and no regulation that could probably have a pretty big impact. So one thing we haven't talked about, we've been talking about waste and plastics kind of uh, globally or generically. But can, can you address problems of waste plastic in a, in a in national, at the national level truly or global level? Or, or do we have regional variations? How do, how do we think about that? I'll start with a few. I think that um, I think it's really important to think about it at the national level. And I say so because I think if you ask any manufacturer, they want one set of rules for the U.S. Uh, they can't do things state by state. Um, the other observation that I'll, I'll make is that it's critical that we think maybe not so much of manufacturers, but of products because we import so much and banning something or discouraging its production in the U.S. when we import 50 or 70 percent of it anyway uh, doesn't doesn't solve anything. Um, I'll throw out that there are some other things we might think about at the, at the national level. For example, can we design new stormwater systems to filter litter uh, in new infrastructure? It doesn't excuse litter, and I don't want to make it easy for people to get away with it, but the fact is there is some. Can we, can we design systems? Um, I think there's a lot that even in the United States we can do on the waste management front. And so um, similarly to this idea of uh, manufacturers not wanting to have to operate on a municipality by or a state by state level, I think us as consumers would love to have some sort of standardized um, waste management so that we don't have to ask in every town that we visit what can go in the recycling bin and what has to go elsewhere. Um, and, and in this way, we could probably create sort of harmonization across municipalities, across states, ideally across the country. Um, there's some legislation that just passed in the European Parliament, which is quite comprehensive to address uh, plastic waste and plastic litter. And it included things as simple as putting on a product what the waste, how it should be treated as waste. Um, so there are ways to sort of make our jobs easier, all of us that want to do the right thing and want to put the right thing in the blue bin. One of the real challenges right now is the, the wish cycling, feeling like it's okay if I throw it in the blue bin, I'm sure it will get turned into something new one day. Um, and in fact, most of us are doing the wrong thing and now contaminating that load and causing it much to be much harder to recycle. Um, so I, I think we really need to work, and that I think would be best at the national level, although I recognize that's not easy. Thinking about the problems of dealing with the national issue and that has global impact, national impact, global impact, are there any, um, you know, and considering the many of the people in the room are, are working on grappling with these issues from the policy perspective, are there any uh, countries or groups or others you admire that offer a good regulatory framework that's adaptable enough to, to deal with the new science as it comes in and, and yet helps us with today's problems as well? Is there any advice you could give to the people in the room? I think April mentioned the European Union is doing good work. Uh, we have to be very thoughtful and we have to bring science into the picture in, 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 a, in a serious way. Um, and there are obstacles. Uh, we mentioned California in terms of banning straws, and that was useful in terms of public relation, but there was also a significant blowback from some parts of the 
of the state that were unhappy with that rule. Uh, the same thing with plastic bags. So uh, this is a political and a science uh, challenge together. And uh, boy, I tell you, uh, a good staffer on this issue that understands these issues and, and brings ideas to the table that are workable is a, a value beyond your understanding. I'll, I'll just add on that. I think, you know, this is one of those where it's a global issue and it really, it's hard to just transfer. There are ideas that and concepts that we can take. One thing, you know, here in the U.S., getting the cost of waste right. I don't know. You know, I, I live in Georgia where it's very inexpensive for things to go to the landfill. So if we want to encourage the circular economy, then you kind of have to look at that from a, a national level and stop shipping waste all over the country to um, cheap and expensive disposal sites. And just one other piece I'll add is this is a space where we've not seen a lot of innovation. If we think about it, the technologies today are very limited. You know, there's some work underway around um, advanced recycling technologies, thinking about new ways to get products to consumers. So if you think about it from a reduction standpoint, and so I think from um, a regulatory perspective, whatever we can do to kind of incentivize encourage um, and create that enabling environment that spurs more innovation and investment in this space will also be helpful. Um, I would just say that um, there's so much work to be done and we all have a role to play. We all use plastic. We all create waste. You can make a change on the individual level. You can work in your institution. You can work at the federal level. There's all a role to play. I am incredibly um, optimistic given what's happened in the past 18 months about public perceptions. Um, I started this off with a sort of emotional appeal that that's why we're talking about this is because people care about the ocean inherently. And so all of that gives me optimism that we will get there. It will take some time and innovation and money, but we will get there. I probably can't think of a nicer note than to say, you know, we all we all play an important role. We all, there are many roles for us to play. It's a complicated issue and that there are signs of hope. So I just want to ask everybody to please join me in a round of applause. For these really wonderful experts. Thank you so much. Podcasts of the previous two Science on the Hill events are available on our website. The June 18, 2018 episode featured a discussion of artificial intelligence, robotics, and your health. The January 29, 2018 episode covered the future of American energy. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com where you can read Ed Bell's story on a 3D-style video that gives you a new perspective on Apollo 11 on the moon 50 years ago. And you can watch that video narrated by my friend Ed. He's a Mets fan, so he often takes soothing mental vacations back to 1969. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Cyan. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank <laughs> you.